What is the one food that you cannot resist? Everybody's got something. What is that one food for you? Chocolate. Uh, maybe some of you are like anything with red meat. Uh, if you're weird, maybe for you it's vegetables. I don't know. There are some people that are into that. For me, it is no-bake cookies. I love no-bake cookies. In fact, the worst story with no-bake cookies for me, as I've shared a couple of times, I was a high school wrestler. Uh, and I was always one of the lower weight classes, if that could surprise you. I don't know if that does. And uh, there was one match we were coming up, and it was a big match the next day. And I had a little bit of weight to cut. And so we go through practice, and I sweat out a bunch of weight. And, and I'm, I'm just like a half pound overweight. And my coach is like, all right, here's what you need to do tonight. You need to have very, a very light meal. And uh, don't eat after, I don't know, 6.30. And, and then when you wake up in the morning, you should be able to burn that weight off. You should be fine to weigh in in the morning. So I, I go home after practice, and my mom had a plate of no-bake cookies sitting on the counter. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, I'm already overweight, but it's just one cookie, right? One cookie turns into two, two turns to, f- I ate the whole stinking plate, the whole stinking plate. I show up to, pr- to, to school the next morning to weigh in, and I'm four pounds overweight. And my coach is like, what the heck happened? And I'm like, no bakes, no bakes. Hey, don't you judge me. Don't, what is that food for you? What is food for you where you have no self-control? You're heading into Thanksgiving this week. Mashed potatoes, anyone? Uh, green bean casserole, maybe for some of you. Turkey, maybe for some of you. What is that food that you have no self-control? It's fun kind of talking about self-control and, and, and joking about food, but self-control, it really is a big thing, right? A number of years ago, there was an advertising campaign put out by Pirelli Tires uh, that showed a powerful fist with tires underneath it. I think we've got a picture of that up here. And, and the slogan for this ad campaign was, power is nothing without control. And that kind of carries this idea. Like you can have a big, powerful truck. You can have a fancy sports car with a big, powerful engine in it. But if it's not kept under control when the rubber hits the road, then that power becomes dangerous. That for, for power to be, power has to be controlled in order for it to be effective, right? And this applies to all sorts of areas in our life. We would understand this. Like we can have all the, the, the power in the world and all the potential in the world, but if we don't learn how to control it, we don't become all that God would call us to be. So just because we have the power, if we don't learn to control it, we miss out on all that God could do through us. In fact, Edmund Hillary, who's the first man to summit Mount, uh, Mount Everest, all the way back in 1953. And this is what he said after they summited Mount Everest. He said, it is not a mountain that we have conquered, but ourselves. And isn't that just a true statement? Like when you think back to your greatest successes in your life, and you think about maybe your greatest successes, maybe it was graduating school, uh, maybe it was raising your kids without uh, strangling them. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe it was overcoming an addiction. Maybe it was uh, success in your career. Like we look back to our greatest successes, and oftentimes those greatest successes are rooted in some form of self-control or self-discipline. In fact, this past February, I had a 
momentary, uh, 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 I don't know what else to call it, maybe a moment of insanity. And I signed up to run a half marathon. I signed up to run 13.1 miles. I call it insanity because only insane people run 13.1 miles, right? You know, the hardest part of that race was actually not the race. The hardest part of running 13.1 miles was the very first day when I'm sitting on my couch watching Netflix to think, I actually, if I'm going to do this, I actually have to get up and I have to run. That was the hardest part. The hardest part was choosing to put my phone down to go outside and run. And then it was when my lungs were yelling at me saying, stop. It, it was the hardest part was choosing to continue going forward and keep running. And then the next hardest decision was to go and do it again the next day. The race was great, but the race was a culmination of me practicing self-control and self-discipline. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, We have the opportunity to conclude this series that we've been in for the past couple of, uh, a month and a half, two months now, on the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, as we've talked about throughout the series, is this idea that if we are actually walking with God, if we are abiding in Christ, if we're walking in the Spirit, then what, should people, what people should see in us is the fruit of the Spirit. We should be people whose character is increasingly defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In fact, as I was thinking, as I was doing some reading this past week on the fruit of the Spirit, I've tried to give us some different analogies to understand what the fruit of the Spirit and and how they play out in our life. And and I thought this is a good analogy as well, is if you can imagine a waiter carrying a bunch of soup out to the table, right? And they've got the waiter on the tray, and the tray's up here above their head, right? Here comes the waiter. Nobody knows what's inside those bowls. You can't see what kind of soup is inside that bowl until the waiter trips And the bowls begin to fall over. And then you kind of see, okay, that's what was in those bowls. You know what? In the same way, like we can claim that we're a Christian. We can claim that we love God. We can know a lot of theology and a lot of things about God. We can do a lot of uh, good works for God. But if Christ is truly living inside of us, it's not until we're bumped that our faith becomes proven. When we're bumped, it's not until whatever comes out of that bowl that proves our faith. What comes out of the bowl in your life when you're bumped, is it the fruit of the Spirit or is it the works of the flesh? See, this is where for me, this series has been so challenging because I can look and see areas of my life that people see more of the works of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why I have prayed, and I continue to pray, Lord, would you ripen the fruit of the Spirit in my life? And I'm encouraged to see some growth, and I pray that you have seen some growth in your own life and faith as well. So this morning, we're looking at self-control. And I think the good thing for us to do, as we've done throughout the series, is to say, what is self-control? The original language combines two Greek words, en and kratos, which means to be in strength or in might or in dominion. You might say it is someone that has power within. Or another way to summarize it from the dictionary is simply self-control is somebody who exercises restraint to their own impulses, emotions, and desires. This morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 to see a story from the life of David about self-control. But before we do that, I wanted to, to think about the words of Jesus. 
Because Jesus said in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have come to give you life and to give you life abundantly. I love that. I love, Jesus says, I've come not just to give regular life. I came to give you abundant life, which means I came to give you a, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of fulfillment, a life of, of satisfaction. Isn't that what we long for? We long to have those things displayed. We want that kind of a life. We want an abundant life. But what happens is we have this human nature inside of us. We have this sinful nature inside of us. We have this flesh that oftentimes distorts the truth of Jesus. So here's Jesus saying, I've come to give you abundant life. But our flesh begins to say, well, maybe I can do better in my own strength. I can create that abundant life for me. And so rather than worshiping God, and, and worshiping God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and rather than loving our neighbor as ourself, which is what Jesus said to do, and if we would do that, then we'd have abundant life. Instead, we love and we worship ourselves, right? And so Satan takes what God created and distorts it and tempts us to find our comfort and our joy in our peace, in places aside from God. And we start looking elsewhere for our satisfaction instead of looking to God. And so instead of trusting God to provide for us and to meet our needs and to give us that abundant life, we take matters into our own hands. For example, when you are hurting, you've been violated, you're hurting within, and you need comfort, Rather than us looking to God to, to give us that comfort and, and to meet us where we're broken, oftentimes we're tempted to look for comfort elsewhere. We look for comfort from a bottle. We look for comfort from an overindulgence. We eat a bowl of ice cream because we're struggling, right? Instead of looking to God for our love and our value and our acceptance, we start looking elsewhere for our love and value acceptance through our wealth, through our status, through our popularity, through our success. Man, I'm valuable now because I've done all these things instead of saying, God, you said I'm valuable and that is enough. In fact, isn't, isn't this the root of sin? Isn't this the very root of sin? That we look to something else to meet our needs instead of God and seeking that abundant life, that, that peace, that fulfillment that we want in life, we try to take matters into our own hands, pursue our own satisfaction, meet our own needs apart from God. In fact, in 1 Samuel 24, this is exactly the temptation that David is facing, the temptation to take matters into his own hands. See, the story of 1 Samuel goes that, that God has appointed Saul to be the first king over Israel. And it's great, he, he, he's doing fine until he disobeys God. And the, the king disobeys God, and so what God says is, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, I'm going to take the throne from you, I'm going to give it to David. I'm going to give it to David. And now here's the thing, David, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man who walks in the spirit, so he is his honoring and respecting King Saul. He's done a very good job at, at making sure he treats King Saul right, but... Saul begins to see, man, God's hand, God's favor, God's blessing. It's no longer on me. Now it's on David. And so Saul becomes increasingly jealous, envious, angry, paranoid, 
And so Saul makes David public enemy number one. And he takes all his energies out to pursuing David, trying to take David's life. So David gathers a group of misfits, and they literally have to be on the run in the wilderness for years, trying to avoid Saul's rage, trying to hide so that way Saul and his army doesn't come and kill them. And that's where our story in 1 Samuel 24 picks up. King Saul is returning from a battle, and he returns to pursuing David. In fact, one of, the, one of the spies in Israel comes to King Saul and says, hey, we heard where David is hiding. He's hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi, in a place called Goat Rocks, which is kind of a network of caves. It was a great place for David and his men to hide, to avoid the wrath of Saul. And so verse 3 of our text, 1 Samuel 24, verse 3 says, Saul came to the sheep fields and he went into a cave to relieve himself. What that means is David's on his, or Saul is on his way and there was no rest area. So he stops in a cave to have a little private time to take care of business. And by coincidence, by coincidence, verse 3 says David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And his men said to David, Here is the day that the Lord has said to you, Behold, I have given your enemy into your hand. Do to him as it seems good to you. I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine you're an innocent person. You've done nothing wrong. But here you are being wrongfully accused by an insane person. Maybe for you, you're thinking about, well, that's going to be this week at Thanksgiving. I've got a family member. They're insane. They're going to accuse me of different things. Maybe that's for you. But imagine you've done nothing wrong. You've got this insane person who is wrongfully accusing you, who's got an army of people chasing you to take your life. You're hiding in a cave, and all of a sudden, the enemy falls into your lap. You have every opportunity to take revenge against your enemy. And maybe we don't call it revenge. Maybe we would say you have every opportunity to protect and defend yourself. Could you justify? Could you justify attacking that enemy? Could you justify defending yourself? I mean, David's men do. And David's men, I love what David's men say because David's men are so much like you and I. Because they take our own worldly wisdom, our own worldly knowledge, and they try and put a spiritual spin on it. They try and say, hey, David, you know, this seems logical that you would be able to take revenge on King Saul. And so this is the day that the Lord has said to you, go and do what seems right to you. The thing is, God never said that. See, we need to be very careful when we say, I speak for the Lord, when the Lord hasn't specifically spoken. Because sometimes we mix up our own thoughts with God's thoughts. So, verse 4, it says, David stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and immediately his heart struck him. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that we do this to the king, the Lord's anointed. I will not put my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words not to attack Saul. Again, here, here's the picture. Saul's doing his business. And as he goes into the cave, he would have taken his robe off because he didn't want to get it dirty while he's taking care of business. And he sets his robe off to the, to the side. And David comes and he cuts off a corner of the robe. And immediately his heart is convicted. He's like, man, this is wrong. See, what you see in David is David has a tremendous amount of respect for the king. 
despite the fact that the king is a jerk, despite the fact that the king is wrongfully trying to take his life, he still respects the position. See, Scripture says this. Scripture tells us that kings and rulers and presidents are appointed by God. Romans 13 says there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Daniel 2.21 says it is God who changes times and periods. He removes and establishes kings. You see, for us to disagree with a leader is a complete different thing than name-calling, belittling, and attacking leaders. In fact, in our military, there's this idea that you salute the, you don't salute the person, you salute the rank. That even though the leader may be a jerk, even though you may have a colonel who's an absolute jerk, you salute because of the position that they are in. And here's David showing us what it looks like. Showing what it looks like to respect the position without having to respect the person. So David, he doesn't attack Saul, but he saw that temptation in his heart. He knew it would be wrong for him to try to make the king look bad. He knew it was wrong for him to show a lack of respect and cutting off the robe. He knew it was wrong for David to even consider getting even in the first place. And so with those words, he persuades his men, hey, let's not go and pursue and take Saul's life. Let's not reseek revenge. Again, I want to just pause and just say, Let's just deal with our human nature. Because all of us in those shoes, we could justify David and his men attacking Saul, right? I mean, I, I certainly can. I can't fault David for wanting to attack. But let's remember, David is a man after God's own heart. David is walking in the Spirit. And so naturally, we should see the fruit of the Spirit in David's life. We should see David looking and playing the part of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. See, here in this present opportunity, David has the opportunity to take matters into his own hands. He could go and and take care of Saul once and for all. But David practices self-control. He resists the temptation, and instead he chooses to trust God. The story continues that Saul, he finds a leaf to finish business, And he walks out of the cave. And as soon as he walks out of the cave, David calls out to him. And David shows him the corner of the robe and says, hey, Saul, look at this. Verse 11 says, I have not sinned against you, King Saul, even though you hunt my life. And then David said something that I think is probably the the central point of this text. And it's probably the key to us learning how to have self-control. It says in verse 12, David says, may the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me against you. For my hand will not be against you. In fact, he repeats almost the same thing in verse 15. He says, may the Lord judge and give sentence between me and you. May he plead my case and deliver me from your hand. See, David in this moment is controlling that temptation to get even. And instead he is trusting God. He is trusting that God is good. He is trusting that God will fulfill the promise that he made to give abundant life. David is trusting God to take care of him, to protect him, to provide for him, to avenge David. In fact, here's the thing. When it comes to revenge, when it comes to revenge, who's better at seeking revenge, us or God? 
I know some of you are saying, well, I'm really good. You should see what I do. Listen, when it really, when it comes to revenge, who's better at it? You see, all of us, we view life through a skewed filter, right? We don't see all the facts. We see our side of the story. Our perspective is often clouded. But God sees everything. He knows the whole story. That's why Scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And David believed that. David believed that God was good. David believed that God was ready and willing and able to take care of him, to justify him, to, to, to make this situation better. And he knew that when God was good and ready, David knew that when God was good and ready, that Saul would be removed from the throne and David would ascend. David knew that God didn't need his help. He knew all he had to simply do was trust that God was going to fulfill his promise. See, David's ability to control his emotions, to control his desires, was rooted in a trust of God, a trust that God is working things out for David's good and for God's glory. And David was willing to wait and trust that God would respond at the right time. In fact, last week, Last week, we talked about the difference between reacting to a situation and responding to a situation. We said this, reacting is when we go with our emotions, our impulses, our desires. Reacting is when we don't have self-control. We just go with what feels good in the moment. But responding is different. Responding requires an intentionality that we think about our response, about what best honors the Lord. Responding is rooted in self-control. Again, just think about your life. How many problems have we created around us because we reacted out of our emotions, our impulses, our desires? How many problems have we created in our life because we did not have self-control and just went with how we felt in the moment because we lacked that self-control? Here's David. He's practicing self-control. Do you think David experienced abundant life? I mean, David chose not to take matters into his own hands. And I have to imagine, I have to imagine that all the soldiers that are with Saul, all the soldiers that are having to follow Saul to take, try and kill David, do you think they looked at the way that David responded? Do you think they had a little bit of respect for, for David? Do you think that led to David then when David became king? He became the greatest king in all of Israel. Do you think that some of what happened in these days attributed to him becoming the greatest king in Israel? See, I have to look at the story of David and say, there's got to be, there's got to be some truth to that idea. That the decision that David made on this day when he chose not to take revenge and to honor the Lord and trust the Lord, I have to believe that that attributed to him becoming a great king in Israel. And actually, Let's contrast this story. 1 Samuel 24, where David has self-control. Let's contrast this story with another story in David's life when he did not have self-control. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's up on a balcony. He's up on the balcony, and he looks down below the city, and he sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba. He sees Bathsheba, and he lusts after her. And rather than trusting God to provide and to satisfy him, David gives in to these desires 
and he goes and commits adultery with Bathsheba. Story says that Bathsheba finds out she's pregnant. Leads David to a number of poor decisions. Decisions that lead up to the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And again, we look at that story. The consequence of David not having self-control. David's sin that was done in secret was made public when the prophet Nathan confronted him and told the story, this is what you've done. The child that Bathsheba bore to David ended up dying as a result, as a consequence of the sin. In fact, three of David's other sons uh, ultimately fell, fell to untimely deaths as a result of this sin. See, here's the point. Here's the point. When we lack self-control, when we give in to sinful emotions and desires, it may lead to momentary happiness, momentary enjoyment, But oftentimes when we lack self-control, we miss out on the very thing that we are seeking. Abundant life, peace, joy, comfort. We miss out on God fulfilling us with what we are so desperately longing for. And so the lesson for us this morning, the lesson that that 1 Samuel 24 teaches us, the lesson that we're learning this morning is that self-control is a result of us trusting that God is good. And believing that God will satisfy our soul greater than we could ever do on our own. That's what self-control is. Trusting that God will satisfy us in ways that we could not even imagine. How many of you have seen the, the movie, The Lord of the Rings? I know there's a book, but I haven't read it. I've watched the movies. In The Lord of the Rings, there's a mysterious ring that has this tremendous power. And when you touch that ring, you are consumed with desire. And unbeknownst to you, that ring will end up enslaving you. In that movie, and I know there's a book, I'm calling it the movie. In that movie, the old, the old guy with, with white hair, whose name is Gandalf, he warns young, young Frodo, the hobbit. He warns him about the ring and says, listen, this ring is dangerous. But Frodo says, this thing doesn't control me. I'm good. And so he takes a ring out of his pocket. He's going to throw it into the fire. But all of a sudden, he stops in the middle of that. He hesitates. Because he could not force himself to throw that ring. And he puts the ring back in his pocket. Enslaved to that ring. I think there's many of us who are enslaved, much like Frodo. Enslaved to... Seemingly innocent activities, behaviors. We would call these habits or hang-ups that tempt us to find comfort and peace and love and acceptance somewhere apart from God. That we find these things that we think will lead us to abundant life and peace and they don't last long. Because so many of these habits, in the moment they fill us, but they leave us hungry and hurting for more. We have to keep going back again and again and again. Let me me ask you, what is it for you? What is it for you that you have to come back to again and again and again because you feel like it's going to satisfy you and fulfill you and complete you? When you feel bad about yourself, instead of looking to God, for how he feels about you, do you turn to the gallon of ice cream 
do you turn to the six-pack? And this is where we go for comfort. It makes me feel better. When you are lacking acceptance and you're not feeling loved, instead of turning to God for that love and that acceptance, do you find yourself trying to build your reputation, trying to build your wealth, your power, your popularity? If I just get enough people to like my post on social media, then I'll feel good enough. When you long for affection and connection, rather than trusting God to, to meet that need, do you turn to pornography or sex outside of God's design? When you are wronged and attacked, we've all been there. When you are wronged and attacked, do you trust God to defend you? God to make the situation right? Or do you try and take matters into your own hands and seek revenge and drop the hammer and give them vengeance? Because vengeance is yours, says the Lord. No, actually, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What is it for you? Where do you struggle to trust God to meet that need, to fill your desire, to give you abundant life? This is where self-control is such an important thing. In fact, as we've talked about this series in the fruit of the Spirit, it's not surprising to me that, the, that self-control is the last of all the fruit in this series. Because self-control is kind of the culmination of all the other fruit, right? Because, because when you are loving, when you, I want you to hear this, when you are loving, chances are you're going to be more joyful to the people around you. And when you have love and joy, you're going to be, you're going to have peace. And when you have love and joy and peace, you know what their companion is? It's patience. And when you are known for love and joy and peace, kindness just radiates out of you. This is the, why the fruit of the Spirit, they kind of build on one another. The fruit of the Spirit, they're, they're their foundation for us. And when we get to the last one, when we get to self-control, self-control is what allows us to live a life of balance. Self-control gives us the, the strength and the discipline to pursue God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. I know we talk about self-control, and I know some of us are here and saying, well, you know, I've tried self-control. I've tried self-control, and I failed again and again. I've been there. I've been there. This is where I want to remind us of the simple truth that's been the key to the entire fruit of the series and is the key to self-control. Is that the fruit of the Spirit, they don't come naturally to us. They come supernaturally as a result of us walking in the Spirit and abiding in Christ. That when we allow our, our minds and our hearts to, to consistently rest on what Jesus has done in our behalf, that's what it means for us to abide in Christ. To allow our heart and mind to, to rest on what Jesus has done for us, that he paid the penalty for our sin, which means every time we've lacked self-control, Every time we've sought joy and peace and comfort apart from Christ, he paid the penalty for that sin. He, in our place, he went to the cross 
and he died, and he rose from the grave so that we could become the children of God, so that we could be filled with his spirit, so that, so that we will not suffer judgment and condemnation. Jesus rose from the grave so that we could experience the God of joy, the God of love, the God of peace, the God of patience, the God of kindness, the God of goodness, the God of faithfulness, the God of gentleness. And guess what happens? When we continually pursue that God, when we walk in Christ, who's the imperfect embodiment of these fruit, it's when we abide in Him that all of a sudden we become transformed and we can supernaturally live these fruit out. Walking in the Spirit and abiding in Christ gives us the ability supernaturally to live out the fruit of the Spirit. Allows us to trust that God is good and that God will satisfy our soul greater than we could ever imagine. Where is it in your life that self-control is a struggle? I'm going to close this morning with a, a final story. Kind of a close to this entire series. I mean, again, I'll say for me, this series has been so good for my soul. It has been challenging to see areas of my life that are rough, that I'm not walking where I should be. And I'm, I want this series to be a challenge to every one of us, that we can talk a good talk and we can have a lot of knowledge and do a lot for God. But are we actually abiding in Christ? Are we displaying the fruit of the Spirit in our life? There's a story of a young samurai a young samurai who's arrogant and belligerent. He's trying to become a great samurai to go and, and conquer the world. And he goes to the town monk. He goes to the town monk and he says, listen, I want to challenge you to explain to me how to know whether a person knows God or not. And the monk looks at this arrogant samurai, this belligerent samurai, and he says, you are nothing but a thug. I'm not going to waste my time with the likes of you. And that samurai, with his honor attacked, he flew into a rage, he, he drew his sword, he pointed at the, at the monk, and he said, I, I could kill you right now for questioning my honor. The monk simply says, that is a person who does not know God. The samurai startled to see that truth of what the, point, of what the monk had pointed out in his life, about his lack of control, about his anger. The samurai calmed down, put his sword back in his sheath, and he bowed in repentance. And he asked for forgiveness from the monk, and he asked, and he thanked the monk for the insight. At that point, the monk says, that is a person who knows God. Let me ask you this morning, what does your character show about your faith? Is your character known by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Because I'll be honest, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of us here. We know a lot about God. We know a lot of theology. We know a lot of scripture. We've done a lot for God. We've been in church a long time. But the question is, when you are bumped, what spills out of your life? When you are bumped, you display the fruit of the Spirit? 
Or when you're bumped, are you someone who is still consumed with yourself, your own wants, your own wishes, your own desires? Does your character show that you are fully surrendered to the love of God, to Christ and what he's done for you? I want you to hear my heart on this. I want us to experience what God promised. I want us, when Jesus says, I came to give you life, I came to give you life abundant. I want that for us. I want that for us. But the only way we experience that and we, is when we give up control of our life to God. When we surrender to Him. We center our life around Him and what He's done for us. Because when God controls our life, that is when we begin to act like Him. When we surrender control of our life, when we commit ourselves fully to, to loving Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, greater than ourself, that is when He redeems our character. That is when we begin to display the fruit of the Spirit. And when we live like that, that is when we remind other people of who Christ is, and they see Him in us. That's what I want for us. And we be a people not known for our theology and how much we know, not known just for our good works and all the good things we do. I want us to be a people known as people who abide in Christ, whose life is consumed and what Christ has done for us and not what we can do for ourselves. Let's pray.